Wow, that's a great honor. So proud of her. We are in part four of our sermon series. If you go with me to the book of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 21. It is Palm Sunday, the day that we celebrate Jesus' triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem. It was a triumphant entry at that time, but before the week was over, um, there was a different kind of triumph. And the triumph that we celebrate in what is today the beginning of Holy Week is next Sunday, the triumph of Jesus rising from the dead. It's going to be a great Sunday. Invite a friend. Let's fill this place up next Sunday for Easter Sunday and, and just have a, a, a great time celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. But today, I want us to talk about his entry. If you have your smartphones, you can find it on the Bible app, and I believe Leonard will have it. Yes, he does on the overhead up here. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem... They came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks you what you are doing, just say the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecies that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, look. Your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over their colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and, all, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked, and the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Lord Jesus I can't even begin to imagine all of the emotions that must have been going through your mind on that day. Lord, you knew that the celebration would quickly turn into a mob scene. The same crowd that that hailed you as their king when you entered the city on that day, within just a matter of hours, would be shouting for your crucifixion. And so, Lord, I... Again, I can't imagine all that you must have been feeling, but today, Lord, I want you to give us, through your word and through the ministry of your word, that just a, just a glimpse, Lord, of all that you endured on our behalf. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. 
It's the story of Palm Sunday. It's the the story of Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem for Passover week. Again, the week which would ultimately culminate in his death and resurrection. Now, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that day, everyone present for his humble entrance uh, knew that there was a regime change taking place. They believed that Jesus was coming into that city to usher in his kingdom, to to overthrow Rome and the the stranglehold that, that Rome had held on not only them, but the entire world at that time. And, and so they envisioned Jesus riding into the city to overthrow the Roman government and to establish his throne uh, in, in the temple. And this was a day that the people of Israel had been praying for for thousands of years. They thought that this day was the coming of their Messiah. Now, Obviously, we know looking back in history that things changed over the course of that week. They went from believing that he was their Messiah to believing even to this day that their Messiah is yet to come. But when Jesus rode into the city on that day, at this point in their history, uh, Israel had been reduced to nothing more than a puppet state under the iron fist of Rome. They had no king. The Romans wouldn't allow them to have a king. Uh, they, they would allow them to have what was called a high priest who was in charge of the religious matters as well as the legal matters that the, the people of Israel encountered. But even the high priest who was allowed to, to do these things was very restricted. The Romans literally said to them, you know what, we have to approve whomever you choose to be your high priest. And, and, and to make sure that whomever you choose never gets any ideas of revolting against Rome, we're going to take the robes of your high priest and we're going to lock them up in the guard towers here at the temple. Uh, you, you can get them out for your feast, for Passover. You can, you can have them for the, your holy days. But you can only have them if you guarantee us that you're going to behave yourselves. And just in case the the people of Israel who come to the temple and by the thousands on these days get any crazy ideas about revolting, we've built this giant fortress that we've named after our great Mark Antony. And we've named it the Antonia Fortress. And and it's attached to the side of your temple. Yes, we built it on the side of of your nation, your nation's most precious building, this structure, this temple that means the world to you. We have our Antonia Fortress attached to it. And, you know, the temple is going to fall under that shadow of this Antonia Fortress that's in actuality much bigger than the temple was. It stands some 14 stories high. When you come for your Passover, you Israelites can look up. Because on the rooftops all around your temple, we're going to have, spear, uh, we're going to have soldiers with their spear tips gleaming in the sunshine. There will be 600 of them there on duty all the time. And since this fortress has these four giant columns that are 14 stories high, we're going to be able to look down on your temple to make sure that nothing gets out of hand. 
So they're pretty much under the iron fist of Rome. But despite the crippling political power of the Romans, the Jews had not given up hope of a coming Messiah. The ancient prophecies of the Old Testament promised that a Savior would come, that a king would one day ride into the city of Jerusalem to deliver God's people from the evil Romans or whoever would be in charge at that time. They knew what the prophet Zechariah had said back in the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter number 9. Zechariah prophesied, I will guard my temple and I will protect it from invading armies. I'm watching closely to ensure that no more foreign oppressors overrun my people's land. He goes on to say, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, people of Jerusalem. Your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, and yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt, just as happened in Matthew 21. Zechariah went on to say, I'll remove the battle chariots from Israel, the war horses from Jerusalem, and I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. So when Jesus rode in, just as Zechariah had prophesied, They believed with all of their hearts that this was their long-awaited Messiah. They also knew the words of Isaiah from Isaiah chapter number 62, where Isaiah said, The Lord has sworn to Jerusalem by his own strength, I will never again hand you over to your enemies. Never again will foreign warriors come and take away your grain and new wine. Within the courtyards of the temple, you yourselves will drink the wine that you have pressed. Tell the people of Israel, look, your Savior is coming And he brings his reward with him as he comes. So having heard all of that from the prophets, from the reality of Matthew's account of exactly how it took place in Matthew chapter number 21. Imagine what it was like on this day for the people of Israel. Their long-awaited Messiah has finally come. The crowd that had gathered remembered the words of the rabbis that had been passed on to them and to their children from generation to generation that it would happen during the feast of the Passover that the Messiah would come and there he would judge all of the ungodly. So now it's Passover week. And everyone gathered is excited that the ungodly Romans are going to finally be overthrown by their Messiah. Now, let me give you a little bit of context from which this story takes place. During Passover week, there are literally hundreds of thousands of Jews who have come to Jerusalem for this feast. Not unusual that it was this feast. They did this every year. Hundreds of thousands from all over the world who who would come to Jerusalem for the Passover, and they would would fill the streets, and a victory parade would, would start to form. And this particular year, the victory parade was two miles long that would lead into the very heart of Jerusalem, and there were people who were standing alongside the road, and 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 they could see Jesus starting to descend from the Mount of Olives on the back of this donkey's colt. And they would, they would say to each other, the prophet from Nazareth, Jesus, he's the one. He is our Messiah. He has to be. I mean, he just healed two people. And, and, and they were blind, and now they can see. 
And as the crowds began to gather in the streets, Jesus begins to wind his way down that mountain, listing back and forth on the back of that donkey's colt. And people are waving and shouting as they they recall the words of their prophet Zechariah that we read from earlier. And sure enough, just as Zechariah had said, here is Jesus riding on a small donkey's colt. He isn't coming like Roman generals came into the city. When Roman generals would come into the city, they would come in riding on their war horses with a lot of attention and with a lot of pomp. But Jesus comes riding in humility, just like Solomon, the son of their great King David, had done when he rode a mule through that very same Kidron Valley when he came into Jerusalem to take the throne back in the Old Testament. So they're overwhelmed with joy. The people begin to cry out, Jesus, he's the one, he's, he's coming in and he's going to, to eliminate Rome from our thinking. So they began to take off their coats. They began to lay them down on the road in front of him. They would, they would run and they would cut branches from the palm trees and lay those down to making a way for their king's glorious entrance. They're overwhelmed with joy. And as Jesus gets closer and closer into the city, people begin yelling, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. And everyone who has come from near and far to this Passover feast, they're singing their ancient Passover song out loud. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the crowd begins to anticipate what's getting ready to happen. They think to themselves, our Messiah is going to judge those ungodly Romans. And he will finally remove them from from power. He will ride up to that Antoneal fortress that's built next to the side of our temple, and he's going to walk in there, the very heart of the ungodly, and he's going to drive them out. And then our temple is going to be free and cleansed from anyone who doesn't know God. But then something dramatically changed. A surprising turn of events. Because instead of going straight to the Antonia fortress as the people envisioned him doing, Jesus does something that for them was very odd. He doesn't go to the Roman fortress. He goes to their temple of worship. And when he arrives at their temple of worship, Jesus takes a look around and sees what's taking place there. And in response, he begins turning over tables of people who were known to be money changers, people who were buying and selling animals for the people to sacrifice. And then he fashions a whip out of some cords, and he begins to drive all of those who were doing what they thought to be service to the temple out of that holy place. He overturned the chairs of those who were selling doves and saying as he does it, The scriptures declare, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. Now, Jesus doesn't go to the Roman fortress. 
In fact, he doesn't even have anything to do with the Romans. He doesn't go to the barracks to drive out the ungodly soldiers. He goes to the temple, the very center of the Jewish religion, and he drives out people who are providing a service of convenience for people who are coming to the temple to worship. You see, the law of Moses commanded that every male in Israel must redeem his soul by giving a half a shekel temple tax every year. And the Jews couldn't bring their Roman or their Greek coins into the temple because those coins had pagan images on them which were strictly forbidden in God's house. And so they would have to take them to a place where they could exchange them for the Jewish coins. And that's what these money changers were doing. They were taking Roman or Greek coins and, and converting them into the Jewish coinage and attaching a little bit of a tax on top of it to pocket for themselves. And the law of Moses also required that the people of God on an annual basis would come to the temple to offer animal sacrifices. If they had traveled a long way, as many of them had to come to Passover, they weren't going to bring their animal to sacrifice with them. So they would have to bring some money and, and buy that animal to give as an offering after they got to Jerusalem. And in doing it that way, they subjected themselves to prices for these animals that were higher than the market price. Again, the people selling the sacrifices would sell a bull or a pair of birds in a wicker basket, whatever the people could afford. And they again would ta- attach a, a higher price than what normally would be paid. So they were, in the, they were in a business. They were making money. Yes, it, was, it looked like a ministry of convenience, but... They were making money at the expense of God's people. Now those doing this used to be outside the temple to do their work, out in the Kidron Valley. But then a man named Caiaphas became their high priest and he let them move into the temple courtyard and thought it would be more convenient for them. His thoughts, I'm sure, were, you know what, it it costs money to run the temple. And so, we'll pay for the business of the temple with, with, with these businesses that we place here. And, and it, will, it will serve the needs of the people and it will serve the needs of the temple at the same time. In fact, they felt that it had become the most important business in the entire city of Jerusalem. So, as the people had been praying for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Messiah did come at Passover... And he did come to judge the ungodly. But to their shock, the ungodly that he came to judge was not the Roman people, but God's own people. Think about it. Who's violating the holy place more? The Roman soldiers who stand in a tower with the high priest's garments locked inside or temple bankers or money changers who are making money off of every poor person who comes to the temple to worship. 
In doing so, they were undercutting the very reason that the temple itself existed. These, they were bizarre merchants. They were running a, a bazaar, much like we would see a garage sale run. They thought that they were doing something that was essential to the whole temple system. But really what they were doing was keeping poor people from worshiping. Jesus' actions resembled those of the Old Testament prophet Amos, who said in Amos chapter number 5, verse 24, Yes, the day of the Lord will be dark and hopeless without a ray of joy or hope. I hate all your show and pretense the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. In other words, Jesus was saying, you're interested in religion. I'm interested in people. And Jesus judged them for their ungodliness. Now, having given you all the history of that first Palm Sunday, I've done so in order to say this to you today. When our Messiah rides into town, you just never know where he might go or what he might do. You know, us churchy folk, we, we, we think that he's going to be for us. He's going to be against all those evil people out there in the world, right? Us churchy folk, we, we have this picture that he's going to judge all the evil out there, but the Bible tells us something entirely different. I'll share with you the words of the Apostle Peter here in just a few moments. But the reality is our Lord and our Savior, our Messiah, is against sin wherever he finds it. Whether it's in the Roman fortresses of our world or whether it's in our temples of worship. He's against sin. And he's out to destroy anything that separates people from a relationship with God. He's going to remove any type of evil, especially the evil that we explain away as being a part of our religion, the way that we do church. You see, when the Messiah rides into town, he finds evil things right in the heart of his own people. You see, friends... You have to understand, this is not the temple. This is the temple. And when Jesus comes to the temple, he's talking about searching each of our hearts to find what is there. He wants our worship, but he wants even more than that. He wants our daily worship to come from and result in changed and transformed lives that have received His touch and have, are becoming more and more like Him.
When Jesus returns in triumph to judge the ungodly, he's not going to go into the ungodly temples of the world. As I mentioned a moment ago, the Apostle Peter talks specifically about this in 1 Peter chapter uh, number 4, verse number 17. He says, Therefore the time is come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Where's God's house? Well, again, it's not this building. The temple is the place where God's presence dwells, and that's in the hearts of His people. And He is saying to us, that's where my judgment is going to begin, in the hearts of my people. So with that understanding, I have to wonder, what would Jesus cleanse from the heart of God's people today? Well, I think that Jesus would cleanse some things that we've come to widely accept, things that we don't give a whole lot of thought to, just like the currency exchange people in the temple of Jesus' day. I think Jesus would go after any practice or any attitude that somehow keeps out those who we think to be outsiders. You see, when Jesus cleaned out the temple on that, on that first Palm Sunday, he did so and he quoted the words of Isaiah chapter 56, verse number 7, where Isaiah said, uh, this is a passage about God welcoming Gentiles into the kingdom, and Isaiah prophesies the words of the, of the Messiah, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, insiders, outsiders, backsliders, for all nations. I think Jesus would cleanse his people and their hearts of greed and selfishness if he were to come to our temple today. Jesus also quoted from the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse number 11. This temple which bears my name has become a den of thieves. Now you might be thinking, oh, okay, pastor, I'm with you. You're talking about those televangelists. Uh, you know, Jesus would go after those folks like those televangelists, those, those ministries that have provided those televangelists with, with $10 million 80-acre ranches down in Texas. That's the ones you're talking about, pastor. Surely he would go after that ministry couple who's, who's bought a, a $5 million oceanfront estate in Newport Beach, California, right, Pastor? But that indictment would be too easy. Why? Because none of us are televangelists. My whole point is that Jesus would go after what we have come to assume and accept. So what are those things? Well, I've thought long and hard about that question over the last couple of weeks. So let me humbly suggest to you two possibilities that Jesus might come after. First of all, Jesus might want to go after a sin that's very common among us in the church realm. The sin of loving the way that we do church more than the loving the people who might come into our church. 
Let me just say that that's very common almost in any church. We love the way that we have done. We love the way that we continue to do this thing called church. And it's become painfully easy for us to put our our best time and our best effort and our, our most energy into making the way that we do church perfect. We go to great pains to ensure that everyone coming to church on Sunday morning has something that's a part of their comfort zone in worship so that we can keep them happy. And in fairness to those of us who take great pains to do just that, let me just say that you know why we feel compelled to do that? Because we've often been told that if we don't keep so-and-so happy, they'll go somewhere else. find another church that will keep them happy. But here's the issue. Do we put the same kind of time and energy into opening ourselves to people outside of the church body as we do to those inside of the church body? To people who are hurting? To people who are broken? People who are without hope? People who are without God? Would we ever change anything we like in order to help those kind of people connect with God? Or do they, do they have to do all the awkward and uncomfortable work of, of coming to our church and adjusting to our ways? How would we feel if reaching out to others meant that we have to change the time that we worship to find a more convenient time for outsiders to come? What if it meant we'd have to embrace a a new style of service that isn't exactly like our old traditional ways? What if it meant doing something like, like buying a church van and making trip after trip around our community, picking up kids that have nothing else to do but get in trouble? And once they're here, would we welcome those troubled children and teenagers from their troubled homes and backgrounds into our house of worship? You see, friends, what it boils down to is this. Will we continue to turn inward and grasp what we want? Or will we stay open and flexible so that we can become a house of prayer for people of all backgrounds? All backgrounds. Now, if that doesn't make you squirm, Then here's a second possible point of application for you in this text. There's a husband and wife research team that I recently read about who are from Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, who have spent a lot of time and put in a lot of effort to estimate that 70 to 80 billion dollars a year would meet the most essential human needs around the world. And they have written, and I quote, projects for clean water and sanitation, prenatal and infant care, basic education, immunizations, and long-term development efforts are among the activities that could help overcome the poverty conditions that now kill and maim so many children and adults in third world countries. Now, having heard that, consider this next point that they share. And again, I quote, 
That figure of 70 to $80 billion may sound like an impossible amount. But if church members in the United States of America would increase their giving to 10% of their income, there would be an additional $86 billion available to do that work around the world. Now, this is not a message on tithing, so don't even go there. We don't want to often think about, we don't especially talk about what we call giving. And and let me just say, here at Trinity Faith, 84% of what we take in stays right here to fund the ministry of our church. And I can assure you, not many churches in America give that remaining 16% of their giving to missions like we do here at Trinity Faith. And for that, I am so extremely proud and thankful. 16% goes to our mission fund without exception. But here's my point. As thankful as I am for how we use the money that comes in to do the work of ministry here at Trinity Faith, the truth is that if everyone in this church and every church... Every church gave 10%. That's what God calls the tithe. Not any more than just that. And many more here, by the way, give much more than that. But if every church collectively gave 10% as God commands, you would be amazed at how much more effectively the work of ministry would be done here and around the world. A house of prayer for all nations. Think about that. You know, we, we, we look at our missions that we support, and I got to tell you, they're doing a pretty decent job. We look at the missions that the Assemblies of God have, have sent around the world, and, and the Baptist churches around the world. They're doing a pretty decent job at at evangelizing the world. But do you know what their study found? We're doing all of that mission work with an average of 3%. 3% of churches giving. We're doing it on 3%. Can you imagine tripling that number and seeing the effectiveness that would come to the ministry of the gospel around the world. Now, you can stop squirming, but let me just say this. Giving is an aspect of worship. When they came to the temple on Passover, they came to give what had been commanded to them from Moses for hundreds of years down the road. And how many of you would agree with me that people ought to worship and worship well? Do you realize that if we worship God well in this area of obedience to giving as God has asked to do, that he would open the windows of heaven and pour out to his church blessings that were so great that the church wouldn't have enough room to take it all in? Now, let me just say to you, that's the words of Malachi chapter number 3, verse number 8. But that's not just blessings upon the local church and its ministries. That is blessing upon every person who gives in obedience to God's call. How many of you could handle more blessing in your life? Come on now. 
I want all of God's blessing that I can get. I want all of God's blessing upon this church that it can get. I want to see the gospel go around the world with unprecedented effectiveness. You know why? Because when the gospel goes to every nation, every tribe, and every tongue, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to take us home to be with him. Hallelujah. In closing, let me just say that on Friday of this week, we're going to celebrate a day that we've come to call Good Friday. It's the day that Jesus was arrested and crucified on a cruel cross. And do you know why he was crucified on Good Friday? Because the religious leaders, his people of that day, could not handle his indictment of them on Palm Sunday. His judgment didn't come to the Romans. His judgment came to his people. And that indictment put him to death. In fact, they took 30 pieces of silver out of the temple treasury. Money that they'd gotten from taxing worshipers who were exchanging their coinage and purchasing sacrifices. They took it out of that treasury. And they used those pieces of silver to hire an informant. To betray Jesus so that they could arrest him and put him to death. That betrayer, whom we know to be Judas, led them to where Jesus was so that they could arrest him and ultimately crucify him at the end of the same week that began with them wanting to make him their king. How quickly things change. Because when Jesus comes to town... You just never know where he might go or what he might do. When Jesus comes to town, he might challenge the things that are most dear to us. He might challenge the things that are, that are keeping us or others away from God. Friends, I'm telling you today, that same king is going to come again. And when he comes this next time, he will come to judge the ungodly. He will. And when he rides into town, this time it won't be as the one who has come to suffer and pay the penalty for sin. When he comes the next time, he's going to come as king of kings and lord of lords. And he's coming for his people. But they just might not be the ones that we think that he would be coming for. Would you bow with me please and worship team, would you come? Lord Jesus... I'm sure it must have been a shock for those hundreds of thousands of people that on a day much like this Sunday, the first day of the week, hailed you as their their Lord and Messiah. And only five days later, clamored to the Roman authorities to be their friends and do what they wanted to do to you and that was crucify you on a cruel cross Lord I know that they probably were shocked at that turn of events but that turn of events took place
because your judgment didn't come as they thought it was supposed to. Your judgment came upon your church. The ones who had become so adept at excluding, hurting people, lost people. And Lord, when you began your earthly ministry, the very ones that began following you were the people who were considered to be the rejects of society, the tax collectors, the lepers, the prostitutes, the hurt, the broken, the unwanted. And dear Jesus, today I pray that First of all, there is no one in this room who has ever been rejected by your church. But common sense would tell me that there probably are. People who, for whatever reason, have not been given an opportunity to become part of your body. They don't live on the right side of the tracks or they don't dress the way that everyone else dresses or they don't speak the same language that everyone else speaks, or their skin is not the same color as the majority of those in the church. And Lord, if that be the case, help us this morning to repent. Help us, Lord, to repent of of being content with being a a gathering of people every Sunday morning who represent a white middle class of America. People who have not looked outside the church doors but are more concerned about what goes on inside those doors. That's why you told us, Jesus, in your last statement, your last command before you went back to heaven to go into all the world. Not, not to have the expectation that we would be able to plan and program to, with such success that the world would come in here, but for us, the church, to go outside of our church doors to the world where they are to find the least, the lost, the lonely. Lord, we repent of that this morning. And we ask your forgiveness. But secondly, in this invitation this morning, Lord, if there is anyone in this room who has who has been abused by the world, by the church, and they felt the pain of rejection and neglect. Help them to understand this morning that you desire to come and do a changing work in their heart and in their life. And take all of those things of the past 
and wash them into the sea of forgetfulness, never to be remembered against them again. And to take up your residence in the temple of their heart so that you can change and transform them, love them, accept them, use them for your glory. And let today be that day. If you're here this morning and you've never acknowledged Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life, I'm telling you today would be a good day. And I'd like to pray with you. Just raise your hand if that's you today. You've been rejected by the church. You're hurting, you're broken, and the church has not done an adequate job of conveying their love for you. I just want to see that hand. And not seeing those hands today, I'm thankful for that. But here's the rest of the invitation. If you are as I've described in this message this morning, and you've been, become more consumed about what goes on inside the four walls of the church building than you are out, what goes on outside the church building, I want you to raise your hand along with mine because I want to change that. Raise them up. Come on, folks. I know you're here. I know you are. Yes, hands all over the room. Jesus, we want to proclaim your greatness to the people that need to hear it most. You've said, Lord, that your house will be a house of prayer for all nations, all people, all backgrounds. And Lord, that's what we desire by by these uplifted hands this morning. We want to reach those out in our community, Lord, who are hurting those whose lives have been trampled on by this world and its, its systems. They're the ones that, that you're vitally concerned about this morning. Those of us who have been saved for years and, and have come to church Sunday after Sunday to, to, to hear your word, Lord, you still love us. You're concerned about us, but you, you are willing to leave the 99 that are already in the fold to go find that one lost sheep who has wandered away. And so, Lord, they're the ones that need to hear about your greatness. We are in this room this morning. We all agree that you're great. We proclaimed it in our worship this morning. We, we, we proclaim you are great, and we know that, and we appreciate that, and we're thankful for it. But Lord, there's so many in this community that need to know and experience your greatness in their lives. So Lord, as we sing this song again in just a moment, help us to grasp the importance of proclaiming your greatness to a lost and dying world. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet?